The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Morning, everyone. Uh, Please bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, it's good to be gathered among your people this morning. We celebrate your good news, the fact that Jesus has won, and Jesus has borne our sorrows and our sin on the cross. He's paid the penalty for us. He set us free from enslavement to sin, and he died and rose again, defeating death. This means we have everything to look forward to. It means that this morning we're not just dabbling uh, in hobbies or um, uh, some sort of social organization, but we're talking about things of eternity, things that are vital, things of the utmost importance that we need to let transform us. Some of us, maybe for the first time, all of us in measure need to be brought further along on this road to the celestial city, on this road to your rest. So we pray for your help this morning, Holy Spirit. We need you as our true teacher. God, I ask that you would make us more like Jesus through your spirit, through your words this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, my seven-year-old son right now is obsessed with this movie that he is convinced is just the epitome of action and wit and intrigue. Of course, I'm talking about the 2004 classic National Treasure starring Nicolas Cage and Cage's character, Benjamin Franklin Gates, is this patriotic treasure hunter who um, he's actually forced to steal the Declaration of Independence so that a group of super baddies don't steal it themselves and use it for their evil purposes. Even as uh, he, he just commits this chain of daring federal crimes and he's on the run for a full two hours, even in the midst of that, he has the Declaration and he always shows it the utmost care and even reverence. He's always quoting from it or, or reflecting on it or talking about trivia of the men who signed that document because for him, this document changes everything. And for him, this document is very much still alive today. Well, if we and even our pop culture can speak of a political document with that sense of awe, that aura, how much more? are the very words of God sacred and essential for the ultimate reality that's at hand. You know, ever since the beginning of the book of Hebrews, we've been told that God's final message in Jesus Christ surpasses any other revelation. And we've been warned that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And today, we'll see that if we are to enter that realm of rest for which we were designed, then God's word must occupy that space of awe and wonder within our deepest sentiments. 
And these verses today cap off a large section that was pondering a generation who didn't let God's words affect them in that way, namely those who were led out of Egypt by Moses, the wilderness generation. They rebelled. They were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. And we heard last week that they received good news just as we did. And formally, they, they were counted as part of God's people just as you are. But their hearts were hard. And their, the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And we learned that this, um, this rest that we're headed for, this perfection and fulfillment that's entered by faith in God's words, that's available to every generation. And today we have an urgent choice. And that leaves us with the conclusion that we read here in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, this is kind of a, a mixed warning and encouragement at the same time. Warning in that you could fall in a permanent way, but it's also an encouragement to strive in a way that neutralizes that threat of falling. And the structure of these three verses that we're going to look at is, is pretty straightforward. Verse 11 gives us this warning slash encouragement, and then verses 12 and 13 give us the combined why and how for that command, particularly as relates to God's word. The Bible. We're going to talk a lot about the Bible this morning. When verse 11 speaks of the same disobedience, we might fall by the same disobedience. Again, it's referring to the disobedience of the wilderness generation, which was highlighted in Psalm 95, which was quoted throughout um, chapter 3 and 4. So that generation, they had seen wonders of deliverance. They were given on Mount Sinai the very words of God. And yet, despite everything they'd been through, despite all of that, they, they had this presumption that, that God was on their side. And yet, in the end, they had to face the reality that actually they had not been on God's side. Their lives had been defined more by their cravings and their grumblings than by any actual trust in God's words. And that way of life did not get them to where they thought they were going. Again and again, the book of Hebrews wants us to know that we are not above the same fatal folly. Chapter 2. For since the message declared to them proved to be reliable, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Is this you? Do you confess the faith without having it? Do you enjoy the community without actually trusting the Lord who rules the community? Do you worship not God, but anything, God or not, that can give you what you feel a need for in the moment. And I want to tell you this morning that if I'm saying anything that makes you sweat, that's the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a satisfying state of existence that will last forever, and it's not too late, but you need to open your heart and obey verse 11. Strive to enter that rest. 
And we talked last week about how that sounds a little bit contradictory. Strive to enter rest. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to say relax to enter rest? Or let go to enter rest? But no striving, we see. Striving is a form of working. And that's what we have to do in order to rest. How do we make sense of that when just last week we talked about how God's rest, in one sense, starts right away through a renouncing of dead works? So how do we know if we're working in the way that enters rest or working in the way that leads away from rest? It's confusing. What? And, and the answer is that we must work against the wrong works. <laughs> So we have to work against our instinctual efforts to justify ourselves apart from Christ, our, our efforts to prove to ourselves and to God and to everyone else that we're worthy. That sort of work sabotages our work of reaching the rest in God. And so we have to strive against that temptation, that temptation that's always present to rely on what we've done rather than on what Jesus has done. We also have to work against our instinctual efforts to find a homeland that isn't God's land. This is also hard work because of inertia. Everyone around us is so quick to seize upon something closer, something easier to rest in than the kingdom of God. And we look around at those who seem not to need God. They, they seem to have found what they're looking for. They seem to have figured it all out. The thing is, their homeland lasts only as long as their lives. It's very fragile. And if you cornered a brilliantly successful yet honest person at the end of their life and you asked them to tell you their secrets, speak to you about of fulfillment, give me the answers, do you know what they'd say to you? Basically, they'd repeat the Trent Reznor lyrics. You can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. See, Rest outside of God's rest, it turns out to be no rest at all. It's just a mirage. So to strive to enter God's rest, it's the work to keep rowing toward the safe harbor because insipid tides will cause you to drift away. It's the mental and the willpower work to ignore the siren's call that's luring you toward those destructive rocks where everyone else seems to be congregating. Striving means preserving the trust in Christ when he tells you that small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. But if we keep our eyes fixed on him, he will lead us on that path. Striving in the ancient world, it was a word used frequently with athletic endeavors and that definitely makes sense to us, right? Runners have to expend every last reserve of energy if they want to be competitive. They have to ignore that burn in their muscles. They have to ignore the rawness in their lungs. There can be no slipping in vigilance until you cross that finish line. Or you could think of military preparation. Okay, imagine that lots of lives are on the line. Well then, the human body and mind and emotions of the soldiers they're pushed past what they even knew was possible before. There's this heightened vigilance. Striving means going beyond what you're comfortable with, what you knew was even possible. Or you can think of the most important work project that you've ever had. I don't know what that is for you, but so, so you can just imagine um, like the NASA team in Houston during the Apollo 11 mission. 
there's a diligence, there's an earnestness, there's this eagerness that simply can't be replicated during ordinary times. And this is not an ordinary time. This is today, this is a moment of urgency where eternal things are at stake. But how do you strive? How does the Christian work to rest? The answer is with the confidence that God is present and he is doing the decisive work himself inside of us. So to strive, we know that our only hope of success is to eagerly draw on every resource of grace that he's providing. He's doing the heavy lifting. We are striving to take advantage of everything he's providing. And that leads us on to verse 12 where God's living and active word is highlighted as the fitting obsession for those who are striving to enter the rest. Verse 11 is a nice bookend to all of chapter 4 so far. Chapter 4 started with the suggestion, if you remember, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to enter the rest. And then here, this section ends with let us strive to enter God's rest. And those two commands, those two exhortations are kind of the poles for the passage. And it's really interesting because then these verses, 12 and 13, are sort of a um, how and a why to that whole section. They, they serve as a, a logistical support of sorts. And verse 12 says, for, starts with the word for, or we could read so, because, or since, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let's stop and think about how these verses further the argument. Okay, so the word of God is really cool and powerful. How does that support my entering of God's rest? And I think we need to view it really as that twofold answer. It's, it's addressing both of those poles, both those exhortations of the fearing and the striving. Um, so scripture helps us to strive to enter God's rest, just as verse 11 exhorts us, and scripture helps us to fear not entering God's rest, just as verse 1 exhorts us. Another way to look at it is just look at verse 11, right before here, and um, verse 12 kind of answers both sides of verse 11. The living and active word of God enables me to strive to enter that rest, and the living and active word of God will judge me if I fall by that same sort of disobedience. So if you want to rest, if you want to reach God's rest, Scripture is your essential tool. If you foolishly neglect God's rest, then Scripture stands as your damning indictment. And we'll talk about that dual function of Scripture a bit more, but let's get in first to um, verse 12, how it describes the Bible. Let's look at that. In Greek, the emphasis here is on the word living. Living, the Bible, does these things. You could rearrange that sentence to say, for living, the word of God is active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it mean that the word of God is living? It means that it has a mind and a will of its own. Obviously, the words themselves aren't like twitching on the page. That'd be kind of creepy. But the author of these words, the Holy Spirit himself, he is the one with the mind and the will and he's infused that into these words, and he uses them to speak with the utmost clarity and authority and power into our lives. And, you know, when you and I speak, we speak 
fairly flat words. We speak words that have one meaning, maybe two meanings, um, and we're, we're speaking to a specific group that's right in front of us at that time. But the Holy Spirit, this communication is totally different than that. He continues to speak like something like 10-dimensionally through these words in ways that transform everything. They, you know, it goes beyond whatever we know about communication. And we like to think that we're always in control when we're reading Scripture. But truthfully, what's more accurately happening is that when we are reading Scripture, Scripture is reading us. When we understand the living nature of Scripture, then striving sounds something like, let us all the more yield ourselves to this word so that it can search us and try us and prepare us. This word cuts deep and sure, and it discovers the depths of corruption, and it awakens the wealth of our possibility in Christ. So if you yield yourself to be searched by God's word, you will be freed from error and unbelief. You'll be cleansed. You'll be given fullness of life. You'll become this living tablet on whom his words are written for the whole world to see. It's living and active. It's effective. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, when we read of Scripture being a double-edged sword, what exactly does that mean? And the question is complicated even more because the word there, it could be, it could be translated knife. It could be a, a, a knife used for precision cutting, or it could be a saber, like what's used to kill one's enemies. Now, whereas um, if you think about a standard sword or knife, um, you know, just your, your basic one, one edge is sharp and the other edge is dull. But when we speak about a blade as being double-edged, it means that both sides are razor sharp. So the word of God is double-edged. That could just mean that it's super sharp and effective and dangerous. But some people have seen this... Um, double edge as reflecting the dual function of God's word that we just talked about. It can cut either edge. It can cut with either edge. It's, it's equally fit to save, like a surgeon's scalpel, or it's fit to judge through execution. Now, whether that's why it's called double-edged here or not, that's certainly how the blade functions in the context of Hebrews. It has that dual purpose, the surgeon's scalpel or the executioner's sword. And so we can think of scalpel passages like Psalm 119, which says stuff like, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Now clearly God's word for that psalmist is cutting in a way that's productive and ultimately joy-giving. And that reality is why Moses wrote and Jesus quoted to Satan when he was tempted that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God because God's word is our truer sustenance and we need its nourishment every bit as much as we need to eat each day. We need it more than physical food. But then we also have the work of God's word described in John twelve forty eight. So let's look at the other side of the blade. Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And we see a similar picture in Revelation 19. On the one hand, those who are found in Christ are referred to as the ones who hold to the testimony 
of Jesus. So that testimony is what made them safe, holding to that testimony. But then, just one paragraph later, Jesus appears as a rider on a white horse. He's called Faithful and True. And we're told that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And there's, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And from his mouth, now Grant, okay, these are, this is imagery, okay? Don't take it hyper-literally. But from his mouth, there's a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. From, the, from his mouth, that's where the words come from. That's what that's alluding to. God's word is a versatile blade. It works for life and it works for judgment. So for our purposes, as we encounter the word of God, is an insanely sharp blade a good thing or a bad thing? It all depends on how it's being used on us which is great motivation to strive to see it used for its primary declared purpose, to lead us to God and to his rest. So if the word of God is living and active and, and it's supposed to put wind in my sails for striving to enter the rest, why is reading my Bible so hard? Some of us might be asking, why do I open it and, and not get much out of it? Well, I can't say for certain. I mean, perhaps, perhaps you're giving Scripture your nominal attention, but your attention is actually holding more tightly to the very idols that the Word of God is asking you to leave by the wayside. You know, Scripture bears fruit in soft hearts, not in rocky, stubborn soil. Or some of you may not be impacted by Scripture because you're the expert and you never take correction from anyone. And you may have an occasional change of course, but it's because you took someone's word and you forgot that they said them, and then you adopted it as your own idea, and then convince yourself that, oh, my powers of intellect and observation brought about this new perspective. And if that's the way you do life, then Scripture has nothing to say to you. Scripture has nothing for arrogant people who refuse to be vulnerable, refuse to confess their need, who must be the ones in control. So if you fear even one bit that you're stuck in that sort of pattern, confess to God. Out loud might be best. Say, I am foolish and I need your wisdom. I am weak and I need your strength. I am corrupt and I need your holiness. I am unable to save myself. I need your word. Holy Spirit, come and change me. And then after you've done that, pick up your Bible. Or if scripture feels dry at times, perhaps you're going at it with a wrong or overly specific agenda set by you, of course. Give me the answers to this. Guide me through this season. Lead me to a better life. And you're kind of treating scripture as your tool to tap into God rather than as God's tool to transform you. So I encourage you to let him set the agenda. Or perhaps your time in the Bible is changing you more than you know. Not change like a three-month home renovation, but change more like a toddler growing into a thriving child. It happens slowly. It happens day by day. You don't even notice it until one day at breakfast you look up and you're like, huh, you're a little boy now or a little girl. Slow growth is the best growth. And God is the perfect architect of time. 
So the key with Scripture, if it feels dry, if it feels like I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed, to, what's supposed to be happening, you know, don't just sit there and um, beat your head against the wall, but talk to God. You can pray, God, you're the surgeon, and I'm just lying here on the table. So I don't even understand fully what work needs to be done in this operating room, but you do. So have your way in me. I trust you. I'm more than content just to have your words wash over me. And I think if you approach the word with that sort of openness, you'll see results. With God's word, there's no halfway. There's no letting it in just a little bit, letting it affect one part of your life but not the rest. You can't do that. Verse 12 goes on to say that these insanely sharp words, they pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I want you to know it's probably not helpful to try to figure out, well, what's the difference between soul and spirit or thoughts and intentions or how could a sword even divide joints and marrow anyway? Okay, these phrases are poetic in nature and and their purpose is, as one scholar puts it, is to kind of dramatize the skill by which God uses his word to penetrate the apparently impenetrable recesses of our being. So his word can slice through anything. That's the point. And this is why you can read, you can read about God's word piercing people in history. Do you guys read biographies, church history? I really encourage you, if you need to to be encouraged in your faith, Think about what God has done in people's lives. People from all different backgrounds. People who would, according to human logic, would never come to Christ. Rich and famous, poor and nameless, slaves, terrorists, Muslims, Hindus, secular humanists, drug addicts, porn addicts, Hallmark movie addicts. Whatever you've got, all of it can be penetrated by the word of God. That's the point. Now, how does Scripture help us to enter God's rest? 2 Peter 1 says that it's through his precious and very great promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That's what Scripture does to us. Isn't that amazing? It's not just a textbook. It's not just a storybook. It's a lens. It's a key. It's a door so that we can enter into life as God sees it. I kind of cringe when I see those bumper stickers that show B-I-B-L-E with like an acronym that says basic instructions before leaving earth. Sorry, but I feel like that's a shameful underuse of scripture. Having scripture isn't just basic instructions. It's not just just a, a, a life manual. It's more like being able to read the matrix. It changes everything and your world can never be the same. Now, the fact that this is how Scripture operates, that has then big implications for how we do church, doesn't it? Is our approach to Christian discipleship centered on the Word as it ought to be? One commentator noted that we're living in a time when many Christians, many evangelicals who were once singularly known for their devotion to the Word, are losing confidence in the Bible's effectiveness. Yes, it's inspired. Yes, it's useful. But we assume it has to be augmented by human means or wisdom or methods. So then the temptation is to make our evangelism rely on manipulative psychological ploys or to make our spiritual growth depend on techniques and programs and store-bought gimmicks or for our worship to reflect the glitter of Hollywood entertainment. 
far different, this author says, is the message of the writer of Hebrews, who says that nothing is able to escape the revealing, energetic word of God. Therefore, it alone is sufficient for our every need. Do we believe that? Do we go about church like that's true? That sufficiency of scripture that he mentioned, that it means that what happens here behind the pulpit on Sundays also is of the utmost importance. You should listen with a sense of urgency and care. If you can't be here some Sunday, you should listen online. You should, you should take advantage of every sermon. You should listen to other sermons too if you have time. These, this is, the preached word is God's provision to help you in this crucial striving toward rest. And you should be able to hold me accountable for the quality of the teaching that you hear. You know, you should have very high expectations because these are matters of life and death. I heard Pastor H.B. Charles tell about a godly old woman at his church who always sat in the, the first pew. And um, every time his sermons were really hitting the mark, you know, you could hear her there, fully engaged, and she's just praying out loud in response, mm, help us, Jesus, help us, Jesus. And then... Whenever his preaching wasn't quite hitting the mark, she was still there in the front row. You could still hear her praying, but it was a little bit changed. She'd be praying, help him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. I'd love it if each of us, like that woman, understood just how much is at stake here every time we hear the word preached. Now, as we move from verse 12 to verse 13, we see that precisely because the word of God is so living and active... It accomplishes the will of its author. Therefore, there's not even any need to speak separately about um, what the word does and what God does, right? That's why verse 13 just shifts seamlessly from speaking of it, meaning scripture, to speaking of him, God. And so as scripture penetrates us, we read, no creature is hidden from his, God's sight, but All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God's word is kind of like God's eyes here in this verse. And we see that his word is not something that can somehow be removed from God's activity. It's supernatural. It is is a supernatural book. Through this book, God lays us bare. Now, whether we make use of it or not, his word still does fully expose our hidden parts. It knows our secrets. This word knows our tricks of redirection or compartmentalization, and we'll have none of it. We are naked and we are exposed before this God. We're exposed or laid bare like a wrestler who's just picked up and thrown on his back. We're exposed or laid bare like a warrior who's disarmed and just has no recourse, it's helpless. And this exposure means that we have to deal with a God who will surely identify any hidden apostasy. He sees our inner life. He's not deceived by our pious appearances. He's not deceived by our churchy language. God will not be mocked. So if our hearts worship ourselves and not him, we will be found out. There is no self-security. The inmost part of our soul is probed by this word. And this can be a terrifying thing. Or 
if we accept this transparency that's ours, whether we like it or not, this searching eyes of God, of a benevolent God who loves us, that can actually be our source of comfort and hope and change. This is how David saw it in Psalm 139. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He's asking to be searched. He wants it. He knows that if he's humble, It'll lead only to good things. And so the question becomes, will you embrace God's search of you through his word, or will you resent it and fight it? Just as God's word can graciously accomplish his transformation in us, his word also makes humanity accountable to him. Before God as your judge. So the choice is yours. Either use God's words to strive to enter rest or be denied rest because you spurned God's words. Now this section ends with us remembering him to whom we must give account. And there's a little play of words going on in this vignette. In the Greek, uh, the word account there is quite literally word the one to whom we must give a word. So the irony of the passage is that he or she to whom the word has been given will be required to give a word in return. God's word demands a word in return from you. Will you say, yes, have your way in me. Search me and know me. Or will you rage against God's word? Or will you ignore his word, which is actually a response in and of itself? Everyone must give a word. So may the Spirit of God so work in you that your word of response to God's word is perform surgery on me. Because woe to you if you respond to God's word with a not now or so what or I know. In Hebrews 4 we've seen two memorable exhortations. Let us fear and let us strive. Fear that you won't enter God's rest. Strive to enter it. Not by striving in self-sufficiency, but by pressing into every means of grace that God offers like you need it. Because we do. God's rest is worthy of our highest efforts, our most noble striving. And as we mentioned last week, even though our final rest waits at the end of the journey, a portion of the rest starts right now. So rest now. Rest from anxiety, fear, despair, weariness of existence. Second Corinthians says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So rest as you strive for rest. Cease from self-promotion and self-defense. Christ said to lose your life in order to gain it. Those on the path to rest, they're not... They're not combative, they're not defensive, they're not tossed about by the circumstances of life because they live with confidence of the rest to come. Is that you? If you get the secret suspicion that all is not right, that you're not striving as you ought to enter the rest, don't set that thought aside. It's probably the first germination of the word of God within you. The word of God itself is doing its work. It's exposing. Keep welcoming it. Invite the word of God in to search you. Be willing to be shown that you're wrong, that you need to change. 
The knife of the surgeon wounds to heal. The word is living and it gives life. So please talk to me if you need to process it all, how the word of God is impacting you. As we go through Hebrews, I think you'll see that the author's argument is it's cyclical rather than linear. So there's a lot of repetition, and then his transitions are kind of fuzzy too. And this is all on purpose. There's a lot of repetition, but there's also crescendo. And I mention that because the things we've said today, we've said them in previous weeks in different words. And we'll, see them, we'll say them again in future weeks in different words. Uh, repetition is the best teacher, and the author of Hebrews is a master at his skill. So, just to, to meditate on those themes of Hebrews that we've seen, we are seeing, and we will see again. Jesus is better than all. He is the last word. Believe him, embrace his word, strive to enter his rest, or you will fall. And this train of thought is going to be developed more and more, but my prayer is that the message changes you today. Take up his word with awe and with humility because this word is your gateway to all that humanity was meant to enjoy. So strive to enter that rest and do it with an open Bible. Our God, we ask that that would be true of each of us. We ask that we would be people of the book, we would be thoroughly bibline in our thinking. We would just bleed the Bible and it's, um, it would saturate our thinking, our speech, our fondest meditations. Lord, there's so, so many riches here, so much good searching that can happen if we let it. Forgive us, God, for not taking advantage of your word, not using it as it's meant to be used. Forgive us for treating a treasure like a common thing. Lord, we ask that no one here would seem to fail to enter the rest. So God, teach us how to strive. <clears throat> not a self-righteous striving, not a, a self-flagellating striving but a striving that is a form of resting in and of itself, a striving that reaches for you because it trusts in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Pastor Craig is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. So we all know that this is... Uh a believer's table. The Lord's Supper is something we share together as a body. And loving the teaching today, talking about God's word, it's living and powerful. There's power in as a body, a living entity, getting to share in the sacrament of communion. So as we've done many times before, exit out the sides, receive the elements, and come back.